Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The question we're asking ourselves is, how do we create that bridge, especially in families when often we're so divided? And they're both saying, if you say about Scalia and Ginsburg, they're committed to the Constitution. Well, they are, except they kind of different views of what the Constitution is. We're committed to the family, but we may have different views about how strong that commitment is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family Culture. Today with me is Dr. Alan Sager, one of the most polyhedric lecturers I've ever met. Welcome, Dr. Sager. Thank you. Before we get started, Dr. Sager, I want to share with our audience why I said that you're so polyhedric, and so I'll just name some of the things you did, at least the ones I know. So Dr. Sager holds a bachelor's degree cum laude from Tufts School of Engineering, a JD cum laude from Michigan Law School, and a PhD in political science from Northwestern University. He was a judicial fellow at the U.S. Supreme Court in 74-75. He is a past president of the Austin JCC, now Shalom Austin, and of Congregation Agudas Akim in Austin. He was Travis County, Texas Republican Party chairman from 2000 to 2008. Dr. Sigur has taught government at the University of Texas at Austin for more than 30 years. He now teaches in the area of judicial process and behavior, election law, and constitutional development, but he used to teach statistics and computer modeling as well, which you correct me, Dr. Sager. I mean, statistics, the computer modeling, and judicial process are not exactly the same thing. Well, I made it the same thing with my dissertation, which was a computer model of the 1962 term of the U.S. Supreme Court. This I didn't know, but it's really fascinating. We should have a podcast only on that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it would keep much attention. And then I would tell you one little story about it. When I was at the court, it was then Justice Redquist, he was not the chief justice at the time, asked me about it. I was somewhere and he was there. We were talking about the fellows. He said, well, I said, well, my dissertation was a computer model of the Supreme Court. He looked at me and said, oh, you want to replace the justices by nine computers? I said, no, mine's much simpler. I can replace them each with nine equations. He didn't think that was very funny. I mean, in the age of algorithms, sounds like you could have been, you know, prophesizing more than just doing models. But this is fascinating. Anyway, Dr. Seger, we invited you today to tell us something about the inaugural lecture you did for us for our spring semester on the Great Divides. The title of that lecture was Like a Family. Division of Friends, Theories and Ideologies on the United States Supreme Court. And I'm pretty sure that by the time we're speaking now, the video of that lecture is already up on our YouTube channel. So for anybody who wants to watch the entire lecture you gave, they just need to go on our website. But for our podcast audience, I would love for you to tell us something about that lecture. And I would start from why the title, like why thinking of the Supreme Court as a family? Well, what we're looking at is a group of nine people that have to get along, basically, to some extent. I will talk in some of the pairs about what extent that is. That they meet together, they read the same materials, they sit in a courtroom, they argue with each other publicly through a lawyer. That is oral argument. A lawyer makes some argument 
an answer to say Scalia, and then Ginsburg doesn't like that argument, and she'll ask him another question, which is really a question to argue with Scalia. So they do actually argue with each other indirectly in public, read the oral arguments carefully. But still, they got to get together, make a decision, and follow the decision. There'll be very little example of people not liking the decision and then resigning, just like you're a family, you know. Yeah, unless you get a divorce, right? Unless after every agreement you get a divorce, yeah. The old-time families uh, where that really didn't happen very much. Yeah, or life tenure, right? So the equivalent of an everlasting marriage is probably the life tenure. Oh, very good, exactly. And there have been examples of people gotten together better than others. And the question is why? Especially when we find cases where they disagree in so many ways. What would be an example of people disagreeing and yet being, you know, in good terms with each other? Well, of course, the most famous example is the current one with Scalia. Of course, he got along with Ginsburg. He also had a good relationship with Justice Sotomayor. And they both probably had, you know, 15, 20 percent agreement on an average term of cases that come before the Supreme Court. And if we could figure out how that happened, it would be very helpful to all of us in talking with people in our families, particularly, who totally disagree with us probably 100 percent of the time or at least 95. But what you were bringing up during the lecture, and I know we discussed this, that this disagreement of Scalia's times, sort of our times too, where we have a court that is 5-4 very often, you were mentioning that this is not, this is not news. No. The disagreement is, and of course, there's the court at different times. This existence has been more or less close, not really unanimous, but certainly a disagreement haven't been as strong. Although um, tomorrow we're going to discuss Dred Scott, the slavery case that had nine different, I think, or seven different alignments of judges on a variety of issues. And Justice Curtis did think of resigning over it. So there have been disagreements. Some of the times it's personal. I give the example of McReynolds and Brandeis. McReynolds did not like Jews. There's no secret about it. He had some other, he was very charitable, some other positive things about him, but today we wouldn't stand for probably how he was. But he greatly opposed the Brandeis appointment by Woodrow Wilson. But they had to live together. We talked about the Minnesota Twins. Uh, people who grew up together, got on the court together, and then grew apart because of their opinions. For our audience, when you're talking about the Minnesota Twins, you're referring to justices? Chief Justice Warren Berger and Associate Justice Harry Blackman. Tell us more about this Minnesota Twins. Well, they grew up together. They met when they were six and eight years old, went to school together, on federal courts, not necessarily together, but on the federal court, higher federal courts. And Berger was appointed to be Chief Justice by Nixon in 69. And a couple of years later, a vacancy was filled with Blackman. At that point in time, they agreed about 85% of the time for the next decade or more. And then it turned into about a 15% or 25% agreement later on. They parted ways in Roe versus Wade. And then the friends of Blackman who wrote a play called, I think, Chasing Harry, or something close to that name, indicated that the reason they split up was because Berger not only disagreed with him publicly, but sniped at him. Okay. But it did break up what was a, one of the closer friendships we know about on the court. I, in fact, I don't even know that another case where two, probably in the early 1800s, two people who grew up together ended up on the court. But that's pretty rare. 
Yeah, it is. Am I, do I recall correctly that you were talking also as close friends, also of Justices Frankfurter and Reed? Frankfurter and Reed were, oh yeah, they were close friends. Frankfurter considered himself better than Reed. He, you know, been educated in Europe. He went to Harvard Law School. Reed got to be a lawyer, but without going to law school at the time, which you could do. And Reed was very respectful of Frankfurter, wanted, always wanted Frankfurter's input on how he was writing opinions. Their exchange of communications was half of all the communications between justices at the time they're on the court. Their wives didn't get along, so they didn't have a social relationship. Marion Frankfurter was a loner, so she didn't get out that much, and Reed's wife was quite a socialite, and I think the, the record suggests Frankfurter, she didn't like Frankfurter because of the way he thought of her husband. But personally, on the court, they had a very good relationship. They both were Roosevelt people before they got on the court, New Deal people together, and for the most part, voted the same. So, Dr. Sigurd, do you think that what today we call ideological split of the court was less relevant, or was it a different ways in which people interacted with each other? So ideas being different and radically different, but just a different way of interacting. I don't, that's, we'd like to know the answer because as our model, the Scalia-Ginsburg relationship, where they disagree so much and still are very respectful of the other's opinions. In the VMI case, the Virginia case dealing with bringing women to Virginia Military Institute, Ginsburg sent Scalia her opinion so he could write his dissent. And he sent her the dissent so she could know what he was saying. And they disagreed strongly, but they're friends. So the question we're asking ourselves is, how do we create that bridge, especially in families when often we're so divided? And they're both saying, if you say about Scalia and Ginsburg, they're committed to the Constitution. Well, they are, except they've got a different views of what the Constitution is. We're committed to the family, but we may have different views about how strong that commitment is. You know, in my family, my father always said blood is thicker than water. I was very concerned about my brother and sister and I staying together no matter what. You know, and that in some families, that's the leadership. And they do regardless of what they agree on. The question is, when they disagree, how can we, what is it that kept this great friendship between Scully and Ginsburg? Well, there's the opera. We've talked about the opera their love of opera, their love of travel. But what is your answer, Dr. Sager? My own sense is, and I, you know, I try to operate that in my own life, is that we're, with people I disagree with, we're committed, one, to a friendship, and two, to a level of rational discussion. One of my, I'll give you an example. One of my fraternity brothers, his wife, I went to school with, you know, he's been very sick. I've been talking to her and we disagree on politics. So, but we have a lot we can talk about without it being about politics. And if I even drop a word that gets too close to it, she said, you know, that's one area we're going to, we disagree with. So just leave it there. And there was something, Dr. Sager, that you also, that you brought up, I think it was a quote, or if it's something that just said, you often say that you have an opinion, you are not your opinion. Oh, yes. Okay. That's another part that you can help people with. And that is, I have an opinion and you have an opinion about, say, we disagree about abortion. 
if you have an opinion about abortion, you have your opinion, and I disagree. I'm not negating you as a person. You're still a wonderful person. We disagree. We hold that opinion separate from ourselves. But if you are your opinion and I negate, I disagree. I'm negating who you are. Again, from what I recall from your lecture, I remember appreciating a lot the concept of radical candor. That was an radical idea. candor. Yes. Yeah. Would you tell our podcast audience a little more about that? A radical candor is a little two by two table that a person wrote a book called Radical Candor Established, which is if you take a little two by two table, that is, you know, you put one, two, one, two, and you got ones and ones, twos and twos, one, two, one, two, or two, one. She has two axes. One axis is called care personally, you know, and you go from high to low care, but she puts it dichotomously. And the other one is challenge directly. And her four boxes are, if you're a person who cares personally and will challenge ideas directly, you have radical candor, which means I care about you. I will confront your views, but they will not change my caring. The opposite of radical candor for her is that you don't care and you don't challenge directly. She calls that manipulative insincerity. If you care a lot, never challenge. That's ruminous empathy. And if you don't care and you challenge a lot, it's obnoxious aggression. The three boxes you describe as the last three boxes sound a lot familiar probably to what we face very often, to what we do very often. We care too much to say. Yes. You can point that out in many ways. This is not a place to do that. But ruminous empathy, manipulative insincerity, and obnoxious aggression. Many people can say that about people they disagree with <laughs> in one way or another. I always call myself, you know, first look at myself, making this mistake myself very often because it's probably hard to remain in the radical condor part, but that's probably what we need to do. So would your take be that maybe Ginsburg and Scalia were actually doing that? They would fall in that box. Well, I think that's a perfect way to put it. There's a lot of little clips on the web about them. And when they interview her daughter, basically she talks about, you know, their common love for things, so they're real caring for each other. And yet, on the court, they are very challenging to each other. But that challenge does not turn into also not caring. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, your lecture, I think, was very helpful in showing from the beginning on this semester on the great divides and the great polarization and showing that the people that disagree the most and actually determine the future of the policy in the United States, and they're very divided, they actually are able to remain in the same building and doing the same job together and having to reach a common opinion. So it's actually also a, a hopeful, I think, take on the ways in which we can bridge. Yeah, absolutely. Probably you point out the problem when you put me and say, well, what do you think it is? <laughs> I think we have to live in the possibility now that we don't know. We hope it's just not a unique set of personalities at a time and place in history that we see it, that it's actually there's something you and I could do to build that between people. I'm pretty sure that we can do it. You know, we think we agree on almost everything, but I'm sure that if we keep talking, we might find out that there are things we disagree with. But as you said, you are not your opinion. You have an opinion. So... 
one last question before I let you go. And I thank you again for being on our podcast and for having hosted the lecture for us, which again, I invite everyone to watch on our YouTube channel would be, what is the most interesting thing you've learned in studying the, the stories of these justices and their personal relationships? Well, the most interesting thing is it's how hard to find out what they were like. They obviously didn't want these things to be public because I can read, uh, I've got the first six volumes of the Holmes Divide, which is thousands of pages of history. And I've gone through the indexes looking for anything I can find that talks about more personal friendships. And I think when you're in the public place, they are, they probably are happy not to have everything they do public, not that they're hiding anything, but people don't really get what it is to be under the magnifying glass whether you're the president or you're in Congress or you're a judge, where today everything you do could be magnified and you could do the most innocent thing and all of a sudden, maybe you should have recused yourself from that case three years ago. Yeah, well, you make me think it's interpreted as, you know, being private about our private lives that probably the life of these justices is an example of it. Yes, they've tried to be. You know, when they write biographies, we know a lot of, I didn't find a lot about their personal relationships, but a lot about how they lived their lives, what they thought about this, what they thought about that. Not some great vacation they went on with one of their colleagues. Yeah, not the Facebook pictures that we, we post <laughs> ourselves, but we're not Supreme Court justices, so maybe we're excused until then. Dr. Sager, thank you very much again for being our guest. And we look forward to having you again on our podcast for one of the many things you can talk about since you know, all you do and all you've done. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.